0: The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Land Trust. Did you know sportsmen spend over $5 billion annually in hunter and angler access fees? Land Trust is a platform that connects sportsmen with farmers and ranchers like you who have untapped profits just by providing access to their land. Go to landtrust.com slash BOA, as in business of agriculture, to see how much you might add to your bottom line.
1: Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture mm. podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. Got an awesome show for you today. So we're talking about something that in 200 episodes I have not covered. We're talking about genetics, specifically Animal livestock genetics. You know, you're in agriculture. Maybe this is stuff that's old hat to you, but to a lot of people in agriculture, what's happening in the in the animal agriculture space? We're making animals more efficient. We're making it so they use less feed to produce a pound of meat so that then we can have the protein. We're making them uh you know better animals, bigger, faster. This didn't just happen. It's like everything. There's some evolution, but it it was evolution with man's hands, meaning companies like Fast Genetics. I have Shannon Myers, who is the chief operating officer for Fast Genetics, a Saskatoon, Saskatchewan based livestock genetics company. And he's going to tell us all about this fascinating industry of swine sperm and various other things. So Shannon, thanks for being here, buddy. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so um, uh, dear listener and viewer, I do want you to remember that this is a, a podcast that you can listen to wherever you get your audio podcast—Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. But you can also check out the videos at the Damian Mason channel on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and type in Damian Mason channel, and please hit subscribe. Um, and this episode is brought to you by my friends at Land Trust. You heard that in the in the uh, intro to this show, and uh, you'll check out Land Trust. But now what you got to do is listen to us talk about all things swine sperm. Okay, so dear listener and viewer, I've worked for a lot of different organizations over my years. I've spoken to about every, every corner of the table when it comes to agriculture, you know, from, from pork to pineapple, uh, you know, cotton to cattle, whatever. I did a program at the National Pork Industries Conference. I've actually spoken there a couple of times, and the most recent time was with my friend Swine Genetics, I'm sorry, Genetics, the swine genetics company. And I thought, you know what? This would be a cool episode because we've never talked about it. What does your company do, Shannon?
2: Yeah, so good question in a nutshell, Damien. There are um, those out there, and I hope it's most of you listening who eat pork, may not think about your pork uh, comes from breeding stock that originates from a breeding stock company. And that's what we're all about. We're all about... What Damien already introduced, providing a better peg to our customers so they can make better, tastier, more efficient, globally sustainable pork for you, the ultimate end consumer. So that in a real simple, basic uh, line, Damien,
1: is what we're all about. Yeah. So I guess I would help. You know, I've got friends that are in the ag industry. i got friends that are not in the ag industry that listen to this just to understand things. So let's say you're the my neighbor in suburban Phoenix where I live half the winter with the other people from the prairie provinces of Canada, I might add, Shannon, all my all my Canadian neighbors out there. So let's say one of these, uh, you know, suburban types, they might know the word boar you Know boar means a male hog, a sow means a female hog, and it's a guilt before it has its little baby piglets. And it's a you know, it's it's a it's, I can go through all that it's a bull and a heifer, and then the heifer becomes a cow when she has a calf. But a lot of folks probably think, Well, they're on the farm, they've got the boar and the sow, and the boar breeds the sow and makes little baby piglets, and they got the That's not really what happens. Why don't you tell us specifically you work in pork and you hired me for a pork conference specifically what happens because to the person listening to this that maybe doesn't get that. Yes, it still requires a boar and yes, it still requires a sow, but at the farms and modern agricultural production in places like Canada and the United States, it's not quite like the old McDonald's day where there's a boar boar here and a sow sow here and a here, a quack there, a quack everywhere. Tell us what happens.
2: Yeah. So you're right that the basic biology still is what it is. You need a male and a female to have offspring, right? That part, that part still solid. So no that, matter what we do
1: with the bathrooms, no matter what we do with the, in Ottawa and in Washington, D.C. arguing about gender specificity, you still can't fool mother nature. You're going to have to have a male and a female to reproduce last I checked.
2: Correct. last I checked is exactly accurate. So that that's the basics, right? The, the, those parts are fundamental that we should all think about. Um, but but there's nuances within it, right? I think when people think about modern day agriculture, especially if you're involved at all, you would appreciate the huge advances we've made. And and that doesn't matter if we're talking about the grains and crops and row crop industry all the way throughout the animal agriculture segment. But sometimes I think, we think about production practices and technologies, but I think maybe forgotten at times is the improvement in genetics. And there's been massive changes in that. And that's obviously what we're here to talk about today. You know, I'll give you an example. You're right. It still takes a boar to uh, mate with a a sow to make piglets, but here's an example, you know, instead of natural service meetings by far and away in the globe, artificial uh, insemination is regular practice. And why do we do that? So we can take, because we're talking about genetics today, our business really, whether you're in the genetics of crops, animals, whatever, is to find elite animals, the outliers of a population that can take you in a direction that you want to go. So when you find that outlier using a male, for example, Rather than him in the olden days of the old McDonald farm that you talked about, he might have been capable of, of uh, hanging out in the yard with 25 females, right? And that was his job for the year. And with uh, artificial insemination, we know we actually don't need as much semen. We can do some things where we place the semen in the cervix, pre-cervix, post-cervix, and we can use way less semen. So that superstar boar that we found and want to use instead of mating 25 sows, he might be today mating 400 sows per year because we're collecting his semen we're, and then we're artificially inseminating with it. So there's there's an example of something that might be different than what uh, someone who thinks about, you know, when we were younger, Damien, and we either, so many of us either came from a farmer or probably were good friends with the farm and went out and we saw all this, right? Today, as you know, way less of us involved in agriculture. Your book talks a lot about that great book by the way. And, um, and so we're less connected to it. So yeah, there it is food fear. We might, we might not know, we might still imagine there's one bull out running with the cows, one boar running out with the sows, et cetera, but it's, it's different and it's better in many ways because at the end of it all, you know, our ultimate goal is to make a better tasting product that uh, uses less feed and water and labor and all those types of things because we know all those things are limited in an environmentally sustainable way, right? We all want less of an environmental footprint, so that's what we're doing. So some of these technologies and, and things that we talk about today are all with that end game in mind.
1: So Shannon, uh, you know, even though most people now are kind of understanding it, so what we're essentially saying here is to be fair, okay, I'm growing up on a dairy farm. We had a bull for a while. It was just because we had heifers we couldn't get to, we couldn't we couldn't catch them at the right time because the person listening to this probably even understands there's a standing heat time. It, you know, uh, <laughs> there's a reason we're all here. There's a time when the female, you know, ovulation happens, etc. We had a bull for a couple of years, but in general, we did everything artificially insemination. That's going back to the 70s and 80s when I was a kid. Hog operators, certainly as we've gotten larger scale, moved this direction. Now, beef, There are still a lot of beef operations that have a bull running out with, you know, 60 or 80 or 100 cows because a lot of times they're out where you couldn't even see them, catch them to get them artificially inseminated. So there is still more of what you call the traditional method, not that they don't use artificial insemination and, and all that with beef. But that's where to the listener, I think, Shannon, we should tell them it almost doesn't happen at all in the hog business. It happens very little in the dairy business now. I mean, almost every dairy cow is bred through better genetics, artificial insemination beef. It still happens because sometimes the cows are out in the hinterlands of the pork, since you're in the pork industry, how many, how many sows are being bred by boars the traditional old fashioned way?
2: Oh man, that's a great question. It would, um, you know, in developed pork countries, uh, it would yeah, be... places like
1: places like here in the United yeah, States.
2: I, I mean, way, way deep into the nineties, right? There's, there's some, um, Situations for religious reasons, for example, where there's certain groups that don't use artificial insemination, and they'll use what we would call a natural service, right? right. That natural service is fancy for boar sow uh, yeah. in the pen together. But by and large, uh, that would be it. And you're right. You know, Damien and I have—I uh, grew up on a mixed family farm, and we had hogs, we had we had grain, we had cattle as well. And you're right. AI probably hasn't taken off in the beef world the same because because they are out on pasture, right? We know. For most spring calvers, they're mating in June or July. They're out on pasture, so to go round them up is a challenge. There's people who do it, but that's a different scenario. In yeah. the hog world now, you know, I would say it's more intensified. We have them uh, generally – well, not generally. Again, you'd be way into the deep 90s of hogs that would be raised in what we'd call a modern-day hog farm. Yeah. Uh, and, and for listeners who don't know – uh, the gestation length, how long it takes to make a baby pig is three months, that? three weeks, three
1: days. There you
2: go. Right. Three months, three weeks, three days. Easiest one to remember from college, about 114 days. So what that means, right, is they can have two and a half litters almost a year versus one for a cow. So we're breeding her more often in a year. We want facilities and all that so that we can do it yeah. more easily. And then we artificially inseminate them.
1: So again, this is the first out of 200 episodes we've talked about the genetics. We're going to get a little bit more into the things you're breeding for and prevention of inbreeding. So those are questions I had written down before we started recording, but I want to maybe even again, going back to, maybe I got somebody here that's there are folks that are even 25 year olds that listen to this. They are working with their parents, grain farm and dad and grandpa had hogs, but the kids don't, they might even be a little bit like what, what the hell happens. So real quickly, Modern hog operations, as you said, 90 plus percent, 95 percent or more of all the hogs in places like North America are bred and produced into what we would call a modern operation and are using artificial insemination. So just kind of tell us what happens at hog barns owned by or contracted out by Fast Genetics. You're trying to produce sows and boars that are to be seed stock, to be parent stock, to then fill the hog barns in Iowa where their their purpose in those hog barns is just to produce pork, right? So kind of just Correct. give a little bit of an overview of Shannon, wh- how that works so that the person's like, oh, I get it. So yeah, the hog barn they drive by in Iowa might very well just be, yep, all that is is there's 4,000 pigs in there. They're going to go from 14 pounds up to 280 pounds. They're going to get loaded on a truck, taken and slaughtered, made into pork chops. But What's your role prior to that?
2: Yeah, so let, let's just touch on the Iowa farmer, and then I'll roll it back into ours if if I can, and you guide sure. me where I need to be. So you're right. Uh, first of all, for Fast Genetics, our company, we're mostly North American-based, a huge part of our client is in the US. So that that Iowa farmer rings pretty real to me because that's that's pretty accurate. And there'll be large scale farms nowadays, you know, a a 2400 or a 5600 sow farm, meaning there's that many females in it is getting more and more common, more and more efficient. And in that farm, like I said, they'll be mating females, they'll be bringing in semen, probably from an outside boar stud, there's specialized boar studs where all these boars are there. They're collecting semen is the terminology we use. They're preparing it for the farm. And, 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 and
1: some of my friends right now are saying, wait a minute, how does a guy go about doing that? They got pretend, they got pretend mounts for them. Don't they?
2: They they do. Right. it you can train. And, and it's no different in the, the bull world and bull studs is the same way is that, um, turns out males aren't overly sophisticated. We can train them to hop on a dummy and uh, there's technicians there who catch the ejaculate process it and, and, uh, prepare it in a tube or whatever straw, whatever you're doing, and send it off by a courier to this hog barn to breed. And every week there'll be matings going on. I already told you the gestation period, which you accurately uh, remembered from your college days, three months, three weeks, three days, two and a half times a year, each sow gets bred, but um, almost every week someone's getting bred in, in most modern day hog farms. That's how we would run them. So they'll breed them three weeks later, approximately they'll wean those baby pigs. And then that baby pig right. goes you, off. You,
1: you just misspoke. You said they'll breed them. Then they will litter three months, three weeks, three days later, 114 days later, they litter. And then three weeks after that is when we're taking the piglets off the sow and weaning them. You said yes. three weeks after breeding. But yes, it's three weeks after. No, no. After,
2: three weeks after farrowing. After I'm sorry, farrowing. Th- th- after th- farrowing.
1: Th- th- farrowing, dear listener, th- th- if you th- don't know, is the term for, tell them what farrowing means. Having babies, right?
2: So, so Damien, good catch. We breed them. 114 days, which is three months, three weeks, three days after they'll farrow or have babies, parturition, we call it an all mammalian species. And then in most modern day hog farms, after they're born, they'll stay with mom for about three weeks, right? And then we'll wean them onto specialized diets, all that. And then about six months later, on average, that pig is a market pig, ready to enter the food chain where it'll hop on a truck and they'll take them to a slaughter plant. And then uh, the, the mother comes into heat, After you wean her, it's a biological, there's changes in her hormonal profile when she's been weaned, when the babies leave, and she'll come back in heat or in estrus, as you called it before, I think, and and she'll get bred again about six days after and then the, the cycle repeats itself. So that's what goes on in the Iowa farm. And you go ahead and ask me some questions or whatever we can do to clarify that. And then I'll jump back in and say, well, what's the genetics company role in all that? business?
1: Yeah. So what happened on those farms, obviously, is, is they're doing this. Now, they are breeding those sows with little straws. And I would describe it as maybe like a coffee stirrer size, but shorter. And it's got a load of, of semen in it. Am I right?
2: Yeah, well... I'll tell you what. you're probably describing a little bit more a straw of of cattle semen because cattle, uh, in general, they don't they're not looking for a litter, right? They're looking for a calf. the odd time you'll get twins and yeah. you know sub ten percent of the times. but so they uh, can put less in. So we're really getting focused on artificial insemination, but that, that's okay. It's kind of a cool part of the business, right? In cattle, For the listener knowing they put way less uh, sperm in or semen in because number one they want one calf whereas we want a litter of like 15 or 16 pigs when we do it so we need more sperm in general to do that the other thing is not to get too technical but the cattle world adopted artificial insemination as you described in your home operations years ago but you probably all also know you did what we call post-cervical insemination.
1: Yeah. So a lot of people don't remember realize that? that. So the reason artificial insemination in cattle is so effective is because if a bull breeds a heifer or a cow, there's a whole ejaculate that's outside of the cervix. It's in the vaginal canal. And then a, one of them has to get through the cervix into the uterus and attach to the the egg. Right. Uh, and, and remember, I'm right. an agricultural economist, not uh, an animal scientist, but um well, in, in cattle, the straw and the reason the guy puts his arm up the, the rectum of the cow is to guide that straw through the cervix and then deposit it in there. So you're putting it essentially within a, a couple of inches of where it needs to be. You're essentially doing the work for it. So, yeah, you can put very little into the cow and achieve the results So answer your question or, or what you already knew, I guess.
2: Yeah, so g- great description. Uh, you're egg economist. You must have taken an animal science minor, or, or you've, you've done it, right? So and yeah, maybe well it's I've done
1: it. Yes, correct. So,
2: so that little straw. Let's loop back to what you're talking about. That little straw is because in in beef, it's mostly frozen, right? It probably came out of a frozen tank, cryopreserved, yeah, yeah. Yeah, liquid nitrogen. Right, liquid nitrogen, and you put that little itty bitty straw in because you put probably four to five million sperm cells in because you want one calf. And the other thing you just eloquently described is because you go what we call post-cervical. Someone rectally palpates a cow. And I remember my kids asking, wait a minute here, we know enough about biology, why is the arm going there? But the description is what you just said, by rectally palpating a cow, you can actually feel the reproductive tract in the cervix, slide a catheter through the cervix, and, and, uh, and then deposit the semen. Remember from our basic biology, no matter if the listeners uh, in animals are not, this is the same everywhere in biology. The cervix is the great gate to the uterus, right? It's there to protect it and stop it and and, and keep things out. So if you go beyond the great gate, if you will, you can put much less semen because a lot of the semen, if you put it in like you described that boar or that bull, so much of it never actually even gets through the cervix. So right. when we get through it, you can put it on. So I'll loop back. When you said when a farm gets the artificial insemination product, what does it look like? In pigs, we still use quite a bit more. So we don't have a stir stick. We would put it in a tube uh, quite a bit larger than that because we would still normally in the industry put like 1 billion plus, probably closer to 2.5 billion in many operations, sperm per insemination, because we want a big litter of 15. We don't want one calf, one baby. We want many babies. And largely it's pre-cervical, although much more of it's going post-cervical now.
1: Um, and so the farm in Iowa that's got these sows, uh, they get these genetics from you, from your own boar stud facilities where you're trying to take these studs that are like, like you said, you know, you're breeding them for all the stuff you want. And so is it like maybe the size of a syringe that they get? And then that's what they're injecting into the vaginal canal of a sow?
2: A little bigger. It would be a big syringe, um, you know, depending on what you're doing. But yeah, think about a big 40 mil syringe or something like that or a CC syringe. And that starts to put you in the ballpark of what you would think about.
1: So you've got these things going out all the time. Is it frozen when it gets shipped out to these people?
2: Most of it is still uh, it's trickier with, with boar semen to freeze it and thought and get successful. What we would call fecundity. And that's a big fancy word. Does, did they get pregnant or not? And was the litter big enough or not? Like, were there enough of them? It's trickier. So can't. there's still less. Yeah. Real
1: quickly. Cause we're all about educating our listener. The word fecundity I read a wildlife biology class when I bought my first farm property because it had a bunch of conservation land on it and I was going to buy it for hunting. And I read this wildlife biology class and they spoke at great length about doves, which are my favorite thing to shoot. And doves are really shitty nest builders and they're generally not even that good at parents. You know what they do? Fecundity, meaning they just can continue to reproduce. That's what they do. So I didn't know the word fecundity until about 20 years ago when I bought my first farm property. So I appreciate you saying that, dear listener. Or you just learned a word today, fecundity. And it means again, Shannon?
2: Well, it's, it's a, what we would use it as describing is measure of reproductive success, right? How many offspring do you ultimately have? And there's a variety of things that go into that, but that's really what it
1: means. You've got these um, boar stud farms where you're collecting this semen. And then the question would be, What are we breeding for? But before you answer that, I want to remind our listeners that in addition to all the great stuff we're doing here with the Business of Agriculture podcast, and you also know you can check out my agricultural commentary videos on the Damian Mays channel on YouTube, I have teamed up with my buddies at Extreme Ag. This is a group of six high-yield, forward-thinking farmers. Places from Iowa to North Carolina, Arkansas to Illinois, South Dakota to Alabama. These guys set records from the Corn Growers Association, Soybean Growers Association. They created an entity called Extreme Ag. You can check it out at extremeag.farm. Essentially what you can do, because I'm helping them produce videos and podcasts that are informative. If you are a farmer and you want uh, to give yourself a leg up, these guys are making the mistakes. They're doing product trials. They're experimenting with new stuff, new techniques, new practices, new technologies. And you can get all this stuff for free. If you want to go one further, you can sign up and be an actual member and have access to these people. Pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I want to do this thing that you're doing with 20 inch rows and this sort of plant growth regulator product, et cetera, et cetera. Go to extremeag.farm and click on podcast. You can see some of the cool stuff we're already releasing. It's got a lot of very useful and usable information i invite you to go to extremeag.farm and up your farming game all right shannon Myers, fast genetics coo fast genetics awesome company they hired me to do a speaking engagement and they gave me a styrofoam sperm with their logo on it look at that right there fastgenetics.com. my wife thought this is the funniest thing that any client's ever given me um what are you breeding these things for? What are you trying? What genetics are you selecting for? What are we trying to do with the genetics that you're creating at Fast Genetics?
2: Yeah. So let's go back to that farm in Iowa and think about what do we want to give them, right? So first of all, what's the farm in Iowa want to do? They, they better be making a meat product that someone wants to eat, right? Because if we don't do that, and I think sometimes, frankly, we forget that across the egg industry is ultimately the end consumer gets to vote with their wallet if they like it or not. But that that's what we want to do is say, hey, um, food fear describes I, that well.
1: right? I referenced that because I was, you know what, I, I reference this all the time, Shannon. I was out at one of these feed yards in Nebraska, and I talked about why they were doing what they were doing and everything they did, they talked about for them. Mm-hmm. And I said, but what about the customer? The customer doesn't want a steak that is 16 inches diameter, they came and eat that. They said, yeah, but it's more efficient for us and the packer. I'm like, well, eventually eventually, you're going to not have the customer because they're going to say, you forgot about me. So I agree with you. Desirable meat product. We worked mostly on efficiency for a long time. And then we started changing. When do you think that sea sea change happened?
2: Well, I mean, you know, in cattle, they they talked about the Certified Angus Beef Program, what, two decades ago? We were a little bit I would say slower on that in the pig world, but we've focused a lot more on that. I would say the last decade or even 15 years, right? Cause ultimately um, you and I are on the same page on this. What, what are we doing it for while well, we're producing food, there's competitive food products. And so it better be something someone wants. So ultimately if you say, well, what are you breeding for? That's the first thing we sit down and think about is who's going to eat it. And are they going to like it? Yep. So, you know, without, without, um, Getting through all the details, it has to taste good, it has to be juicy, marbling. We all know if we go pick up a pork chop or a steak, if there's a little fleck of white fat in it, it's gonna taste better. It's more forgiving when we cook it. It's it's nicer, right? Um, and there's other and meat
1: t- tenderness, I know, is a big one they talk about more so in beef than in pork. So I guess I'm going back to when I was a kid showing my my uh, Hampshire cross there in 1979 at the 4-H fair. That hog weighed about 230 pounds. Mm-hmm. Hogs now look like little bodybuilders. Certainly the show hogs do, but even the market hogs, the production type hogs, they, they got, they're bigger. They got more meat on them. They're about 50 pounds bigger. I think a market hog goes to market like around 275, 280. Am I right? Yeah. 280 is more
2: like 300. Even now, Damien, it gets, is bigger, largely driven um, by the slaughterhouse, the packer and leveraging fixed costs over a bigger carcass weight. But even they, you know, uh, I've been involved in my lifetime and integrated. And what we mean by that is we're not just genetics, but commercial production, selling meat to the marketplace. There's, if we again, put our consumer hat on say, what do we want? You're right. Uh, consumers don't want a pork chop that big or a loin that big. They, they want something that's a reasonable size. So yep. even as an industry, we need to think through that, but that's what we're doing. And, you know, I'll take it back to that farm in Iowa. Okay. First of all, they have a female. And so in our business, we focus part of our efforts on what we call maternal genetics, mothering genetics, maternal lines, female lines, breeds that make the best mom. So as you might expect, what do we think about? Is she a good mom? Is she a good milker? Um, Does she have large litters? Does she rebreed and do it well? Is she nice to manage? Is she healthy? All those good things is what we call go into our maternal program. So that farm in Iowa hopefully they're buying what we would call replacement females. Cause we don't last forever. Nothing in biology lasts forever. And they have to replace some of them as they get older. We'd want to sell them replacement females. Then we'd like them to breed it. And you know what, in our industry, if you remember back to biology, you've been pretty good on this so far. There's a thing, there's a few free lunches in the world, right? One is photosynthesis, what we get from the sun. And the other one is from biology is what we call hybrid vigor or heterosis. When you cross lines and you're smiling because you know this when you cross breeds with different traits within them you get a bump from the average so let me give you an example if you breed in any species by the way but i'm focusing on livestock today if you breed uh, a line a breed a with an average merit score or an index number i'll call it of 100 with another breed with a 120, what should the theoretical average be? It should be 110, right?
1: 110, but because 110. of hybrid vigor and heterosis, we actually get more than 110. We even get more than 120 sometimes, you, am I right?
2: You, you nailed it, right? So that's the second free lunch in nature. So why am I saying this? We're going to give them a different line, what we call a terminal line. This line was not red, and you talked about your Hampshire, shark. That would be a classic example of a terminal line. They were probably god-awful mothers but really good growers and all that sort of thing so that's what we would call a terminal breed kind of like the the Charlet or or uh, of, of the cattle world right versus the Angus Hereford which is the maternal line so for your cattle listeners your maternal lines of course would be Angus Hereford breeding to something like a Charlet as the outcross of for hybrid breeders.
1: Yeah so the idea there is the Charlet brings frame score and frame yep. size and a few other things and so in a hog it is by breed, but it's also within the breed, you're saying this boar right here has this. And, and that's what you're analyzing, correct?
2: Well, well, first of all, it's both, Damien. We're going to cross different breeds. So let me be actually um, concrete with what I'm saying of the breed so that those maternal lines, if anyone listening has been familiar with the hog world, the two predominant female breeds that we use to make an F1 parent are landrace and Yorkshire or large white. Sometimes that's interchange, right? So anyone who's done animal science ever probably recognize those as the two, what we call white pig maternal breeds because they're physically white and we use them as an F1 parent mom. But then we want to come in with that third cross, the, you know, the Duroc is kind of like the Angus of the pig world. And here's where you're going with that. We of course want to use the super elite Duroc, not just a Duroc, but we want a super elite Duroc, for example, to cross to that F1 mom. And he is bred for, we we don't care about his mothering ability of his line because we've already taken care of that over here. We want it to be good growers, strong feed converters, you know, robust, they live, they're healthy, they're, they're tough enough. And, but most, and then most importantly, what we've always talked about in the end, they got to be an awesome contribute an awesome eating experience to the end product. So that's what we would breed a terminal line for. Does that
1: make sense? Yeah. So I think that's really cool. You and I both know the breeds, a bunch of people listening to this do not, but it doesn't matter because it's really, it's the principle versus the knowing the difference between a Duroc and a land race. But the point there is you've got the, the, the female side that you're looking for milk and, and mother mothering ability and large litters. And then of course the rigor vigor, you know, to, to be healthy in a, and complex. And then you bring in the male side for the other stuff. Um, how do you prevent inbreeding? Um, it's probably not as bad with hogs. Now I can tell you, going back to the old days, when there's dairy farms scattered on every County road here where I live in Huntington County, Indiana, I imagined about every calf for a couple of years on the Holstein and Holstein dear listeners, the black and white dairy cows that you uh, probably associate with. I think for about two years, every calf that was born was born to Jupiter. Some damn thing like uh, ABS Jupiter or something like that. American Breeders Service Jupiter it was like this bull that was just a, a stud bull. They must have been just uh, they might have been watering down the semen. I'm joking. They weren't doing that. Everything was bred to this this bull. Is that a problem in hogs? Are you getting to where you're like, holy crap, we've overused this farm or this boar or this semen too much? Is that an issue?
2: well it could be an issue uh, but it's not for us because we we have as you would probably hope some uh sophisticated people trained phd geneticists and reproductive biologists who think about this every day and that's one of their jobs amongst all these other what we call breeding goals so they got to make better pork but there's all these nuances that they need to think about and that's one of them right so you know there's a a thing called line breeding, and that's using what we would call a pedigree or an animal, a super elite animal quite a bit. But when you use them too much, then you get into a problem, what you've called is inbreeding, right? And that's when you get too many of the same genes in the same pool and you start to get some problems so we actually damien i'll just tell you quickly measure it by a number we call an inbreeding coefficient so when you take a pedigree you know are you first cousin second cousin third cousins once removed whatever that's kind of how we would look at it in a, a genealogy if you're at a family reunion but theoretically there's a mathematic equation behind that that tells you when you're starting to get over the red line and you need to back off so we look at that frequently to avoid that
1: um, because there's people that are listening to this that, you know, they already heard about inbreeding because we've all made the jokes about, you know, uh, people being inbred, but let's talk about line breeding. It's something that the average person that's not been in the livestock industry. Doesn't really understand. Explain real quickly what line breeding is and why you would do it.
2: Well, I mean, we, we, are at a pure level in because of, because of, um, the jokes i suspect that we've all you just said we've all made jokes about
1: inbreeding right but But you guys do it about people from new brunswick or no no Newfies. you guys you guys in canada are always picking about the inbreeds from from newfoundland i've been up there for work i know that we might choose a southern state here in the u.s you know like some poor person from west virginia i don't know i don't make those jokes but i've heard them made
2: okay so I'll, I'll, i'll let you um you pick the spot but the uh the the truth is There's a certain amount in most populations where it doesn't matter. And by using a super elite male or female more in a population probably has some advantages, right? Depending on what we call your breeding goals. And so that's what we call line breeding, right? We don't, we don't have to be like from a different city to make everything okay. Biologically, they, you know, they can be closer together, slightly related And there's not a biological problem with that. Now, if you have an ethical or a brain problem around that, that's a whole different conversation. Well, I believe that even
1: in cattle, there was a line breeding method where they would have a really good bull and then breed back its own heifer. The idea that you're going to take the best characteristics of the cow that it bred with and the bull and then pass them on even more and get a bump out of line breeding, the bull breeding its own heifer calf. Is that true? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty extreme line breeding, but yeah, that's true. And then if you keep doing that or too much of that, you get into it. An inbreeding problem yeah. where the, the the risks are eventually going to start outweighing your benefits
1: exactly let's talk about the future and then we'll we'll hang it up here um, you've gotten amazing at this you and I both agree that we've concentrated on efficiency Instead of flavor, and the consumer in places like Canada and the United States and the rest of the developed world is going to more and more demand flavor, tenderness, all those kinds of things, as well as maybe story. They want it to be humanely raised, ethically sourced, all those things. Where does that take you? What does that do to fast genetics in the future? Is it going to be that efficiency always is there, but it's less about that five years from now and more about some other thing? What do you think happens to this business? I mean, you've done a hell of a job. The pigs are better. (laughs) <laughs> the cows are better. You know, the dairy farm that I rent my land to gets 85 pounds of milk per cow per day. When I was a kid growing up, we thought 50 was a big number. It's genetics and nutrition that has done that.
2: Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? It's Same in the pig world, of course. Nutrition, production practices have been great. Genetics has moved it along. You know, I'll just tell you quickly, when I grew up, if we uh, thought – A sow could have 15 pigs per sow per year. So remember, she farrows a couple times or has babies a couple times. Yeah, two and and a half times times, a year. Now, now now we can get that per litter. So we can see 32, 33 pigs per sow per year, like doubled it, right? Feed conversions. I was just thinking when, when uh, before I came on your podcast, Damien, when I grew up, when I think about what a hog had to eat, he's he's eating a. And I'm, I'm not that old. Uh, he's, he's, he's eating a third to 40% less feed to get to the same weight. Like it's, it's huge gains, right? By so the way,
1: right. say, I want you to say that again, because this is the thing. With the Alexandria ocasio Cortezas talk about how meat is destroying the planet, I call bullshit. We are making more meat with less resources than, than has ever happened. What did you just say? We're taking that barrow which is a castrated boar, dear listener, to market, meaning it's turning into pork chops and we're making them 50 to 60 pounds, 70 pounds bigger. And we use how much feed less than we would have 40 years ago?
2: Yeah, 30 to 40 percent less feed. Right. It's it's absolutely remarkable. The other thing is because of genetics and that's that's because because of the breeding you do. It's because of breeding and genetics It's about finding these specific outliers that are great and, and using those lines and breeding them. The other thing I want to just add to your comment, it's not only less feed, we're doing it with feed by the way, because that gets my goat too, Damien with feed. That's not really human grade. Like I think about distillers, grains from, right. from uh, the ethanol industry. I think about byproducts of, of the soybean meal after we crush the oil out canola meal. So not only are they gaining faster, more efficient, less carbon footprint, less environmental footprint, They're doing it with feeds that are not otherwise usable to the human edible uh, mouth. So if we think about environmental sustainability, I I think that's just a great story, right? And so when I read uh, the people like what you described before, it it drives me nuts because it's not true.
1: Yeah, it's not true. And like you said, we're using dried distillers grains out of an ethanol plant, for crying out loud. And you and I can't eat that. There's not any way we can convert that to nutrition for us. But I think the great story, as I always tell everyone in agriculture, if you're going to talk about your efficiency of production, make sure that you bring it home for the suburbanite in, you know, metropolitan Toronto so that they understand what this means to you. You can have your pork and eat it, too, because your pork got bigger faster because of genetics and nutrition science. And it did it with 30 or 40% less feed than just 30 or 40 years ago.
2: Yeah. And then to your point, what's the future look like? We're not going to give up on efficiency because, you know, ultimately, I think not only is it better for the farmer, but it's better for the environment. It's better for the globe. Like so many times people think it's some, some, um, antagonistic thing that if it's great for the farmer, it must hurt the environment. Those two things usually run in parallel, right? If I'm, if I'm growing and eating less feed, using less water, less labor, Uh, that's great for the farmer, but it's also great for the environment. So those things I don't see us changing because you asked me that, what do I think of the future? The efficiency part still matters, but we have what we call breeding goals. We sit down as a company, take all of our smart people, put them in a room and say, well, where do we really want to be in the next decade? Because, or or two decades, because breeding programs kind of take that long. To switch directions, go somewhere. So we think no. We still want to be super efficient. We want to be environmentally friendly. We want to implement really new and kooky uh, technologies that are going to be okay with the consumer. By the way, there's some ones out there that that in in the hog world as well that I think when you get to the end game, I'm not sure the consumer really wants. So we want to steer clear from them. But we want it to taste good. We want you know when I look at consumption global meat protein consumption continues to grow year after year after year right but the scary part a little bit is that's mostly because of all the underdeveloped nations want to eat more right they they eat little if you look at that probably the the bottom 10 nations in terms of meat production and if you take out for religious reasons because some of them aren't going to eat it no matter what but for socioeconomic reasons the bottom 10 probably eat less than um, 10 kilos of total meat per year so I'm in Canada, I use kilos for your listeners in the US, 22 pounds, right? Yep. And so that's in developed nations like the US and Canada, Europe, that you'd be almost 10 times that. Line. It
1: is. It is. In fact, it is, in fact, 10 times that we eat about 220 pounds of meat in the United States of America. And that's not counting fish, which is 16 pounds, 220 pounds of just poultry, pork, beef and lamb. And you're saying these these poor countries, it's one tenth of that. So it's one tenth. They, yeah.
2: So that's where the growth is coming from, right? But what I do worry about too, though, is in these developed nations, the 220 that you talked about, it's pretty flatline, right? And there's this whole thing that you talk about in your book and on your podcast, I know that, that people are, are worried about it. So I always think rich, full bellies sometimes make foolish choices, right? Or, or, or um, choices that you, you sort of shake your head at. Was when you look at these underdeveloped nations eating 22 pounds, they can't wait to eat more. And then here we are, eating uh, a lot more than that, but saying, well, we don't want it. We want this or that. I respect choice, but I think there's just this disparity sometimes. But if I think about the future, I think we need to manage and and worry a little bit about the uh, developed nations like us, like Canada, like, we won't go through all the nations to say, okay, what do we do to create that trust and comfort level? So they'll hop back on the, the, the meat train. Cause I think they should, I think there's a great environmental and health story to it. But then the other part, when we think about the future is all those, uh, in and developing nations, we all know the China story and how much more uh, meat consumption they've done over the last two decades. It's yep. huge. Right? So when people tell me, you know, what do you think of the meat industry? so many competitive products coming in these days, it's like, hey, market will always create space for choices, but fundamentally, pendulum swing, but I think the meat story is still pretty uh, awesome story environmentally, globally, uh, for economic reasons and driving economies and feeding people
1: and yeah, the argument against its deficiency and the argument against its terrible environmental impact is refuted pretty easily with all the things we're doing but you know those are facts and facts don't always play well with science or political agendas I'm excited about it. I like pork. I like what you're doing there. I like that you're, you're talking about five and 10 years from now concentrating on, on flavor. You know, I think there's going to still be a little bit of thing about pasture raised and all that. You might be selling semen. In addition to the, the major normal productive production routes, there's going to be a little bit of this outdoor stuff because some of these restaurants are banning that do you have something there. Yeah,
2: we, we do. I mean, really, we're not out there to tell our customers what their market ought to be. There's niche markets everywhere and it's like power to you. And we have people doing outdoor raised stuff. We have people doing some very specially branded stuff, white tablecloth uh, restaurant work. And I I think that's great, right? Our job is to say, okay, what, you know, in business, you must think about this too, Damien. Lots of times we, get caught in a trap where we want to tell our customers and consumers what they ought to think about eat and do. But I think is the opposite. We ought to listen to them and say, Hey, if you have a market for it, good for you. We'll try to help you out and breed something that works for you.
1: His name is Shane. I agree with you. That's where we're going to wrap it up right there. And I think that that's the forward thinking way that uh, some of our, our forefathers in the last 20, 34 years didn't think that way. Like, ah, you ate today be happy it's like well i don't know man the consumer is more discerning now than ever and and they can be in places like the u.s and canada so we're going to continue to use genetics from companies like fast genetics to produce what the customer wants i think it's awesome His name is Shannon Myers. He's a chief operating officer for my former client and will be client again someday. I'm sure Fast Genetics. They gave me a styrofoam sperm. If you want to learn more about what they do, go to fastgenetics.com. If you're watching this, I'm holding my little styrofoam sperm up to the camera. It's got their website on it and it's got their logo on the other side yes, yeah, my favorite thing I've ever gotten. Anyway, uh, this is the Business of Agriculture podcast. As I told you, please check out my uh, my new rollover with Extreme Ag. That's X, no E, ExtremeAg.farm, ExtremeAg.farm. Go and check out what I'm producing for them. And please share this episode with your ag and non-ag friends. They can learn about our buddies up there. And contrary to what you've heard, North of the border in a place called Saskatchewan, it's not just a bunch of musk ox and and like igloos. I mean, they have they have farms up there. And Shannon is one of those guys. He knows what happens up there. Awesome. Thanks for having me. You know, I had to make a wise apple because the average American thinks that north of the north of the border is just all a bunch of, uh, you know, ice fishing all year round or something. So, all right. Till next time. It's the business of agriculture.
0: Thank you for tuning into the Business of Agriculture podcast sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust partners with farmers and ranchers to capture pure profit from sportsmen seeking new experiences and places to hunt and fish. Land Trust built the platform and does the marketing. You maintain 100% control of access and activities, and you set the rules. There's no cost or obligation when you list, and the next 10 Business of Agriculture listeners who go to landtrust.com BOA are eligible for a gift worth over $2,000.